Welcome back to the Clean Energy Revolution from National Grid. I'm Helen Skelton and in this podcast, I'm meeting people who are taking action and sharing ideas to future-proof our world through the energy we use. From how we can use sustainable, renewable materials and resources to innovative technology and solutions given to us by nature itself, the world is changing and we are all part of it. This time, I want to look more deeply into a subject that's come up a few times. In this podcast, we're going to talk about carbon capture and storage. Whilst we're really focused on lowering carbon emissions, the other question lies in how we can reduce what's already in the atmosphere and contributing to global warming. The structure itself is about the size of Manhattan Island below the seabed. It's basically a a porous structure that enable the CO2 to be sort of stored and then trapped for a very long period of time. Our peat bogs are emitting a lot of carbon, so the idea of restoring peat bogs is to reverse that process. We're only just realising the benefit that blue carbon habitats can have for climate change mitigation. Today I'll be finding out about some of the ways we can lock away carbon, how engineering is helping us to do this artificially, and how we can work with natural processes to increase biodiversity and environmental value. Joining me to discuss what we mean by carbon capture is Dr Jeanette Whitaker, Principal Scientist at the UK Centre for Ecology and Hydrology. Hi there, Dr Whitaker. Nice to meet you, Helen. And Bilal Ahmed from the Northern Endurance Partnership, part of the East Coast Cluster Project here in the UK. Morning, Helen. Right. Talk to us about what we actually mean by carbon capture. Bilal, what is carbon capture and storage? Carbon capture and storage, in an engineered sense, is all about connecting to industrial emitters and projects that emit carbon into the atmosphere, building facilities to capture that carbon rather than releasing it into the atmosphere, transporting it usually via some sort of a pipeline system to safe and long-term storage deep in a geological structure below ground. The scale of what we're talking about here is, is absolutely huge. Jeanette, you're coming at it from a very different point of view, a natural point of view and solutions that are not man-made. You've been working in this field for a long time. So before we unpack what you're looking at, just tell me how carbon capture and storage, how it's kind of evolved and changed, how the dialogue around it has changed in recent years. So I've been a scientist at the UK Centre for Ecology and Hydrology for about 24 years, scarily. When I was a student and when I started, carbon capture and storage was kind of seen as quite futuristic, very expensive and hopefully not needed. But in the intervening years, we have failed to cut our greenhouse gas emissions. And so now it's really clear that to avoid the worst impacts of climate change, we need to use all of the solutions that we have. And carbon capture and storage is kind of part of the mainstream debate around uh, reducing emissions, you know, storing carbon. How do we get to net zero, keep warming below one and a half degrees? And so it's not it's not this kind of futuristic thing. It's it's in demo around the world um, and it's seen as a really major tool in, in climate mitigation. Does that worry you, though, that you started in this field over two decades ago and you were looking at something that hopefully you wouldn't need and now it is very pressing. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, as an environmental scientist, it's, it is frustrating that we are where we are. 
But, you know, the, the debate has changed enormously in the last 10 years. And I think there's a complete recognition in the public, in government and in industry about the urgency of action. And it's actually put a new lens on the research that we do at UKCEH. So we've been doing research on peatlands, tropical forests, agricultural land for decades. But now we're looking at them saying, you know, how can we use them and harness nature to actually help us store carbon and also restore, you know, there's conservation benefits to doing it as well. So it's kind of bringing together different reasons for looking after our environment. We're going to talk more about your findings in a minute. But before we do, Bilal, just talk to me about how much of a solution in terms of meeting our 2050 carbon emission goals, how much of a solution does carbon capture and storage offer? The journey we're on in the UK to net zero is uh, is a huge ambition. And what everyone does agree on is that it can't be delivered without some form of engineered carbon capture and storage in the in the mix. And, and what that's really all about is industries that don't have other pathways or solutions to decarbonize. So we've got steel production, fertilizer production, gas-fired power plants, all of those facilities currently emit CO2 into the atmosphere. And they don't have the option to switch overnight to a clean fuel or to completely remove their emissions. It's not the ultimate and only solution, but it's very much a part of the, the solutions mix. There's greenhouse gas removals technologies, which are slightly different from carbon capture and storage. Um, And they are things like direct air capture, you know, chimneys that suck CO2 out of the air. But also we can use crops and forestry to take that CO2 out of the air. So bioenergy with carbon capture and storage is kind of a land-based and an engineered solution. We grow crops, we burn them in a power station, and then we capture that CO2. And that's a way of actually reducing the atmospheric carbon concentration. And so it's just thinking about those those different ways that we can both capture, but also reverse climate change. And that's what we looked at in this study, which we did for the UK government. What did you find? Because obviously lots of people are on board, as we discussed before. Lots of people are planting trees. You know, you hear about all kinds of independent companies saying, oh, for every purchase, we'll plant a tree. Is it worth doing it? Does that make a difference? Yeah, so I mean, what we did was we looked at all of these different options together, we looked at the positives and negatives, and how we could use them to get to net zero by 2050 under different scenarios. So these are kind of what if, you know, what if we invested heavily in CCS? What if the UK public were okay with planting an enormous amount of trees? Um, and I suppose the key findings were that land based options are generally cheaper. And we can do them, some of them now, you know, we know how to plant trees, we know how to better manage our soils, but there's conflicts in demand for land. We want to grow food, protect biodiversity, tourism, people, all that. Engineered solutions, the limitations are really around the speed that the technology can get to the scale that we need. And so that's a kind of engineering challenge and innovation challenge. But in the long term, engineered solutions have got greater potential than land-based solutions. So they were the kind of the high level findings. So what is the on the horizon that is going to make a difference and we are going to see more of, Bilal? The, the East Coast cluster is, is an opportunity to help decarbonise the Humber and Teesside regions in the UK. So these are really kind of the industrial engines of the UK economy. And what that means is there's an incredibly high density of CO2 emissions from, from both regions. The East Coast cluster is one of the the two clusters that has been selected by the UK government to now progress. 
and come on stream and start capturing and storing carbon by the mid-2020s. So we're really getting after the, the sort of engineering and design of the facilities required to get this off the ground. What are we looking at? What are we going to see on the East Coast that's taking carbon out of the atmosphere? What we're going to see across the, the Teesside and Humber regions is uh, effectively a network of pipelines onshore, which will connect to all of these industrial emitters. Each emitter, whether that's a power plant or a fertilizer producer or a, a hydrogen plant, will retrofit a unit on their facility to capture the exhaust gases which are currently going into the atmosphere. And then through that unit, they will put it into a pipeline system. That pipeline system will then go offshore. So we will have two offshore pipelines from both regions going to a part of the Southern North Sea where we've identified a really good potential for long-term carbon storage. We've got a store which we call um, Endurance, and that is the store that these two pipelines will connect into the storage we've identified, we believe, can remove and store up to 20 million tonnes of CO2 by 2030. And that is you know, the equivalent of about 9 million cars going off the road in the UK. These networks, although they're the engineered solutions, they do really link to the land-based solutions as well. As I said, bioenergy. You know, so Drax Power Station in Yorkshire is, is, is burning wood residues and, 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 you know, plant material to produce electricity at a very large scale. They're just not capturing the CO2 just yet. You said that you've identified an area in the North Sea that you can put it. How readily available are these storage areas? The, the technology and the know-how and the knowledge we're using to identify storage facilities is really technology that's been used for decades and decades to find oil and gas sites across the world through various surveys like seismic scans using boats to identify where we have deep geological formations that can store CO2. This is what we call a, a saline aquifer. So what that means is it's currently full of very salty water which is something that will sort of help with the CO2 storage uh, over time. The other option is to use depleted oil and gas fields, which is also something we're looking at and, and sort of repurpose them for carbon storage in a, in a very similar way. To give you an idea of the scale we're talking about here, the Endurance Store, which is the primary store for the Northern Endurance Partnership, is located about a kilometre below the seabed. So you can imagine you know, how, how deep that is. We're, we're having to drill wells through about a kilometre of seabed. And the structure itself is about the size of Manhattan Island below the seabed and is about probably about the size or height of the, uh, the Shard or the Empire State Building. It's basically a, a porous structure that enable the CO2 to be sort of stored and then trapped for a very long period of time. Storing carbon under the sea or in the sea, is that safe? Well, one of the things we're doing is putting in place monitoring equipment over time. What that will enable us to do is firstly monitor how much carbon is going into the store, but over a very long period of time also be able to see how that carbon is moving within the store. And that will enable us to visualize and ensure that the, the storage and the, and the sort of dispersion of the carbon within the storage is behaving as it should be, and also monitor for any potential leak paths and sort of intervene before any potential for leaks starts to occur. And could you leave it in there indefinitely? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is why, you know, the, the level of investment that's going in here wouldn't be feasible if it was just short-term storage. This is long-term storage over thousands and thousands of years. 
And when you're talking about that northeast cluster, how quickly could you see an area like that become net zero? Yeah, we, we see both of these regions having the potential to achieve net zero by sort of the mid-2030s. That obviously relies on engineered carbon storage. How much of the solution will be natural-based, Jeanette? So we saw that bioenergy with carbon capture and storage would take about a half or a bit more than half of the potential greenhouse gas emissions through those technologies. And the land-based kind of solutions, you know, soil carbon sequestration, afforestation, biochar, producing charcoal from biomass, various other kind of more niche technologies could, could maybe do about a third of the, of the total by 2050. What do you mean by bioenergy? You know, I talked about tree planting, uh, sort of carbon and these kind of strategies. But bioenergy crops is an area where we don't plant very much at the moment. We've got about 10,000 hectares of bioenergy crops. And these are things like willow and big grasses. And you can grow them and they can be used for power, for electricity and combined with carbon capture and storage. And, and it's an area the government are investing quite heavily in, in innovation and demonstration. I mean, these crops are incredibly productive if planted well, and they can deliver biomass a lot sooner than forestry. What crops are good for energy? Willow is one, which... Willow is one, yeah. Poplar is another woody crop, which is, can be grown at short rotation coppice like willow, you know, harvested every three years, or you can grow it on a longer rotation. Energy grasses. So in the UK, we have miscanthus, it's known as elephant grass which can grow to about four metres tall. And that's grown and was used in Drax power station in the past and maybe again. Other grasses like switchgrass, reed canary grass. Thank you both. It's fascinating and reassuring to hear about some of the ideas and projects that might work to reduce carbon emissions. But it's important to remember that this isn't a solution on its own. We have to reduce our footprint massively by 2050 to prevent devastating consequences for the climate, lives, livelihoods and environments. Next, I want to look a little more closely at how, as Jeanette says, we can restore nature's resources to help lock away carbon. Dr Rob Law is in Rigos, South Wales, to tell us more about a national grid project there. My name's uh, Dr Rob Lowe. I work for a company called Vigare. I work on conservation sites and try and manage the hydrology of conservation sites. We're on Hairwine Bog. It's set in a very industrialised landscape. It's a very unusual setting for a peatland. Along the northern boundary, we've got the A465 Heads of the Valleys dual carriageway. And around all the other sides of the bog, we've got um, the Hirwine Industrial Estate, which includes the National Grid Station to the west of us. Hirwine Bog is the western edge of the Brecon Beacons. It's outside the National Park, but the National Park starts to the north of where we are now, near, near to Penderyn. We're standing more or less in the centre of the bog now, and we're standing on the deepest parts of the peat, or the thickest parts of the peat, are between 7 and 9 metres thick. And peat is vegetation which has died but hasn't decomposed. So it's, a, it's a, an organic deposit which has gradually developed through time. Most of the peat we see now has developed since the end of the Ice Age, about 11,000 years ago. The fawn colour is given to it by millennia grasses. The bog is around 15 hectares in size. We can also think about peat in the context of greenhouse gas emissions. The peat that we're standing on represents a quite a large mass of carbon. 
what we've done is probed the depth of the peat. We've been able to calculate the volume of peat within Hearwine Bog. And we came up with around 350,000 cubic metres of peat. And our calculations came up with around 32,000 tonnes of carbon dioxide is the equivalent of the, the carbon which is contained within the peat. Is the equivalent of the emissions of 20,000 cars driving for about a year. You know, it's quite significant in carbon dioxide terms. Peat bogs in the UK are very degraded for various reasons. Our peat bogs are emitting a lot of carbon, so the idea of restoring peat bogs is to reverse that process. Ideally, we would get to a, a situation where peat bogs were capturing carbon. Hearwine bogs are a very degraded bog for a number of reasons. The size of the bog was reduced by all the industrial development and the, and the transport development around it. It was drained, and both of those things lowered the water level in the bog. We've had invasion of non-natural bog species into the bog as well, and that's increased the amount of evaporation, which also lowers the water level. So when we, when we come to restore a bog, hydrologically, essentially, what we're trying to do is raise the water level, and there's a number of things we've done to try and do that under the national grid's undertaking to re restore the bog under planning. We've blocked the ditches using recycled plastic sheet pile dams, which we can drive into the peat, so that's a very lightweight technique. About six months ago, we got somebody to come in and chop all the birch trees down, and we, we put the birch stumps into, into the ditches to try and block them up a bit more. And we've also um, got some grazing animals on here, mainly ponies, and they're keeping control of the purple moorgrass, which is invaded because the bog is drier. So all of those things raise the water level in the bog and encourage more natural bog species. It's worth saying that bog restoration is a kind of open-ended process. Bogs are always going to be developing. When we've restored them, they're always going to be developing and getting better. And, and our, I think our job in terms of the restoration is to put the correct conditions, the basic conditions in place so that the peat bog can evolve in the natural way that it wants to. And that benefits us in terms of what's called the ecosystem services that the bog provides to us. During the length of this project, which is 25 years, we would expect to see sphagnums developing quite widely on the surface of the bog. We'd see you know, water levels quite close to the surface for most of the time. And I think if we do that, we know that we've got, we've got the bog into a position where it can develop naturally, effectively on its own, and be in, be in really good conservation condition. The long-term ambition is certainly for the flora on the bog to develop. So we'd be looking for large carpets of sphagnum, hopefully, bog pools and sundew, things like that, natural bog vegetation, which in, in the small scale is really very colourful and very beautiful. But as we, as we walked on today, we disturbed a snipe, which will be getting ready to nest coming into the spring. So we are already we're starting to see those changes in the bog, um, which is all really encouraging. Thank you, Rob. Sounds like the wellies were a good idea. That site is not open to the public for safety reasons, but it's providing a flourishing habitat for wildlife. 
It's clear that nature-based projects need long-term and sustained support in order to help them become a more resilient asset for our world and to help these new or restored ecosystems survive. There are no quick and easy solutions though, but by changing the way we use and value such natural resources for good, at least we can avoid making the same planet-threatening mistakes again. We've talked about engineering, we've talked about nature and how we can combine these to take the carbon out of our energy systems. Earlier on, Bilal talked a bit about using ocean aquifers to lock away carbon. But what other answers might the sea hold? Some of the ideas in this field are new and sometimes controversial. So can the oceans be our secret weapon to tackling emissions? Catherine Kerr found out more. Have you heard the term blue carbon? Coastal ecosystems such as seagrass meadows, mangroves and tidal marshes capture and lock away huge amounts of carbon from the atmosphere and ocean. They're one of our greatest natural resources in the fight against climate change. And yet these ecosystems are under threat. And when they're lost, that means a whole lot more carbon dioxide in our atmosphere. So I'm a biogeochemist, which is looking at the interaction between chemistry, geology and biological processes, basically, in different habitats. Annette Burden is a wetland scientist working for the UK Centre for Ecology and Hydrology in Bangor. Annette, what does your job involve? As you said, I look at wetlands mostly, uh, so peat bogs and salt marshes. And I specialise in like carbon capture of those habitats and how land management changes that over time. So how do wetlands and sort of coastal environments tie into carbon capture? The, the process, they're like really productive systems. The plants within the habitat, like salt marshes, they grow a lot each uh, growing season. And the dead plant material then stays within the habitat. And because they're waterlogged habitats, peat bogs are too, all of that plant material stays there and the vast majority of the carbon within it then just gets kind of trapped within the soil. And because they haven't got oxygen, because they've been waterlogged, that carbon doesn't get broken down. And also with, say, salt marshes, they have this kind of added benefit of when the tidal water comes over the habitat, the plants trap any sediment that's in the water and then that kind of settles out and then that kind of adds to the soil as well. So any carbon in the water then gets kind of trapped within the habitat. They're great sinks of carbon. Coastal habitats trap about 50% of the carbon within all of like marine sediments. So they're very... Wow. Yeah. And that's globally, is it? Yeah. That's incredible. So it sounds like in the UK, they're also a really important part of our environments. But how common are these kind of habitats? Yeah, well, they're, they're found all around the coast. But in the past, a lot of the habitat has been degraded or lost, mostly due to kind of land claim, a lot for kind of agriculture. About 4% of the land area in kind of England and Wales was intertidal habitat at one point, And now it's about 0.2% of the area. And with seagrasses, there's kind of a current estimate of about 92% of the seagrass has been lost in the UK. So there's a big push now to kind of restore and create more habitat. But the pressures on the coastal environment are going to be kind of exacerbated in the future through climate change, Mm. through kind of increased sea level rise and increased storminess and things like that. So we have to kind of keep that in mind when we're recreating these habitats. So in terms of restoring those habitats, is that quite easy to do or is it something that's going to take years and years? I mean, how much can we actually count on it as a solution to fixing away carbon that's in our atmosphere right now? 
it's um, a solution that that is readily available and can can happen now compared to other kind of greenhouse gas removal solutions we know how to do it and we can do it now it doesn't take long at all for habitats to recover enough to to begin with stop losing carbon which we need you know it, we need to do as well but then it doesn't take long for the kind of functioning of that habitat to start sequestering the carbon in kind of salt marshes it's pretty much kind of instant as soon as you restore a site which is mostly done in the UK by basically knocking a hole in the wall of a of a flood defence and letting the tide come in that that's basically all you need to do instantly you're then getting the tidal water coming in and bringing that that carbon with it within a few years you're going to start getting plants growing within that site and then through you know photosynthesis then you're you're capturing that carbon from the atmosphere as well Quite often these these sites when they're when they're restored they've usually been used for agriculture for quite a long time and they tend to be a bit below sea level so the first thing that happens is you get a lot of extra sediment accumulating so you basically kind of create a big kind of mud flat within the site and then as the sediment accumulates you start getting kind of salt marsh vegetation wintering birds insects they're really good like nursery grounds for fish they're just lovely places to be in. You know, when the, the sea lavender's flowering and you're there at kind of sunset, they're just a, an amazing place to be with the, all the birds singing as well. That sounds amazing. So why aren't we making salt marshes along all of our coastline <laughs> in the UK? <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of land demands in the UK. So there is a lot of kind of agricultural land around our coastline. So you know, we have to consider where would our productive land be if we did convert a lot of land to salt marsh? Would that actually be worse for greenhouse gas emissions and carbon? So what examples could you give of salt marshes around the UK that are really thriving and, and doing a great job of you know, helping us lock away our carbon? Uh, that's the thing, like restoration of salt marsh, even though you think it's kind of a win-win, there hasn't been a huge amount yet. That's so interesting. I wonder why. The, the concept of blue carbon is quite a new one. We're only just realising the benefit that blue carbon habitats can have for climate change mitigation. So it's kind of in its infancy compared to kind of what we know about peatlands in terms of what happens when you restore sites. We, we don't know a huge amount about what happens when you restore a kind of blue carbon coastal environment. I think we're on the cusp of seeing lots more restoration sites in the UK. There's been about 3,000 hectares of restoration of salt marsh and total salt marsh area in the UK is about 46,000 hectares so it's quite a small amount. There's kind of a report by the RSPB that came out a few years ago where they suggested that there was about 32,000 hectares that could be restored for salt marsh habitat. There's big opportunities all around the coast to restore them. So like the past research has focused on carbon stock changes over time so how much carbon is in the soil and how that changes over time when you restore a site and then we've kind of moving on from that current research is looking at kind of pathways of carbon so how restoration and like natural marshes as well how how much greenhouse gas emissions there is how much kind of flow of carbon kind of in within the water column comes in and out of the site say Um, and then we're also at the moment creating a salt marsh carbon code so a carbon code is like a, a voluntary standard that enables carbon to be marketed or traded as offsets and in the uk at the moment we have two domestic codes so 
a woodland carbon code and a peatland carbon code. So it's hoped that the salt marsh code will work in the same way. And it can attract kind of private finance into restoration. So instead of a lot of restoration salt marsh in the UK has been due to kind of compensatory habitat because of habitat that's been lost because of development, say. Mm -hmm. And there just isn't enough money, you know, government money to restore a lot of habitat. So if we can get private investment in, it potentially could inject a lot of capital into restoration. Back to your point about blue carbon being a relatively new kind of, I suppose, not really a new area for research, but a new idea to kind of enter the mainstream in terms of our solutions. It's not just salt marshes, is it? There's loads of other habitats that are related to the oceans and marine on coastal environments that we could look at as as an option. Yeah, on a kind of per unit area, habitats like salt marsh and seagrass can sequester more carbon than a tropical like forest. It's just that the land area is a lot less. So in the kind of more tropical areas, mangroves take the same space as salt marshes. So mangrove habitats have lots of similarities to salt marsh and work in the same way, basically, as well as having more of a stock of carbon above ground because of the trees growing as well. Seagrass globally will be like an important carbon store. And there's a project called Project Seagrass. Swansea University are involved in it, WWF as well, where they've started restoring seagrass around on the Welsh coast. And they're looking at how to do that in the most effective way so that it can be kind of rolled out more around the UK. So that sounds, I mean, I'm not involved in that project. I don't know any of the detail of it, but it sounds like a really exciting project as well. Where does kelp come into it? I've heard lots about kelp. That's the kind of, that's a seaweed. So it's a large seaweed. So as the kelp dies, some of it will sink. And the idea is that if it sinks deep enough in the ocean, then it will get trapped into kind of marine sediments. And then that carbon will stay there. There is so much carbon in marine sediments. It's quite mind-boggling, really. So the ocean itself is one of our planet's greatest resources, isn't it? Removing around a quarter of CO2 emissions from our atmosphere and absorbing heat. There are all sorts of ideas out there on how we can use biochemistry and technical approaches to harness its natural processes, like running electrical currents through seawater or adding minerals to convert CO2 into bicarbonates. I even read something about adding iron to stimulate phytoplankton. But this can create toxic algal blooms if it's not carefully managed. So in reality, how careful should we be when we're playing with age-old natural processes? Yeah, absolutely. We need to be careful. And I feel we need to follow a kind of precautionary approach and just be led by the evidence. The approaches you kind of mentioned are, you know, they're ideas and uh, people are looking at them, but we in no way kind of know whether we should be using them yet, uh, what the kind of benefits will be. And we need to be careful of like unintended kind of negative consequences, as you mentioned, with the kind of adding iron. I know in like peatlands, we've been looking at like applying biochar so you kind of lock away and stabilize that carbon that's been captured by trees and you create the biochar and you put it on the ground and then it's kind of stored for you know a very long time Um, and we've also been looking at applying kind of rock dust to soil to capture more carbon so then the kind of chemical reaction of degrading those rock particles pulls more co2 out of the atmosphere there's no reason why those applications couldn't be used, say, in a, in a coastal habitat. So if you were going to restore a salt marsh, 
before you have all of that added sediment coming into the site, you could, in theory, put biochar or something on the ground to kind of lock away that carbon. But no one's really looked at it as yet. Well, it definitely leaves me feeling hopeful that there are solutions we haven't quite fully interrogated <laughs> yet in terms of you know, the fight against climate change and reaching net zero. So um, thank you so much for sharing a few of the ideas today. It's been lovely talking to you. Yeah, thank you. It sounds like there is much more to be researched and explored on the path to net zero and beyond. But respect for nature is a part of that process and making sure we understand the impacts of our activity upon ecosystems and other processes is no small feat. What's important is that we can support the research to ensure we don't do more harm than good. Any kind of carbon capture and storage is just a piece of the puzzle to reducing carbon emissions and there's no one solution or quick fix to meeting this global challenge. As for supporting natural processes, it's clear this is a long-term goal and that attitudes towards the way we use resources and value environments need to change forever. I'm Helen Skelton and you've been listening to The Clean Energy Revolution. Next time, I'll be looking at what all of this change means for social equality and fairness in our societies. How do we make sure nobody gets left behind in the clean energy transition? See you then.